0: You're listening to your local radio. 101.7 WKOM, Columbia. You're listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning, the show where you gain clarity and understanding about such things as last will and testament, the probate process, trusts, and how not to lose everything you own to the high cost of the nursing home. Now here's your host, Estate Plan Stan.
1: All right, hey, good day to you. Good day to you on this August the 5th, 2023. You are listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning with your host, Estate Plan Stan. I am Stan Pierchowski with Pierchowski Estate Law, Pierchowski Elder Law, located on the square in beautiful downtown Pulaski, Tennessee. Bulletproof Estate Planning is the show where we talk about all things estate planning. If you've been listening to me, you know that. We progressively move through things like the last will and testament, revocable living trust, special needs trust, asset protection trust, and 10-care planning, both pre-planning and crisis planning to help keep you from going broke in the nursing home. As always, I encourage questions. This show is all about education and what your options are. So we like to discuss your options so you can be informed. If you have a question, you can call me at 931-363-7222 or go to my website at estateplanstand.com. There you can find my email and ask your question that way. Hey, I always enjoy doing this show here on Front Porch Radio, WKOM, 101.7 in Columbia. And keep in mind... Keep in mind that all my episodes are posted as podcasts on the WKOM website. So if you ever miss one or you want to go back and review a topic, I mean, they're all there for you to do so. All right, let's talk about seminars coming up. You know, we just had one last Saturday, but the next one coming up is scheduled for August the 19th. That's a Saturday, too. You know, we seem to be doing more Saturday ones, they just seem to be easier for people to attend. Um, Not as easy for me, but I mean, hey, I'll adjust my schedule so it make it work. But anyway, when we do the ones on Saturday, we do them at 10 o'clock in the morning. So uh, August 19th at 10 a.m., it's at a place called Suite 501 in Franklin, Tennessee. We're going back to Franklin. Uh, The actual address is 416 Mary Lindsay Polk Drive, Suite 501, Franklin, Tennessee. It's a nice little place in a little strip mall. It's at the very far end of it. Uh, they call it Suite 501. Uh, so if you want to come to that, uh, call my office at 931-363-7222 and RSVP to be there. Again, August the 19th. That's a that's a nice little venue there at 501, but it is kind of limited. Usually we hold them in bigger places. Um, but when we get to that one, it's a real nice place, but you know, it probably holds... 50 full house and that's you know 40 to 50 sometimes is where my seminars usually we usually uh, uh, gather attendance so if you're interested in coming to that and you know, don't wait till the last minute or you know if you come in at the last minute we'll just see what we can do that's a place where they do have extra chairs and i, I probably could bring some out if we had to so get signed up for that early uh it's um you know just a couple weeks away uh, in August. So August 19th, next seminar in Franklin, Tennessee. Call me, RSVP. We call it Wills, Trust in the Nursing Home. And that's what we talk about. We talk about the alternative to writing a will and the alternative of losing everything you own to the high cost of long-term care. So, all right. So we've been discussing this crisis planning. We've been on this. We've been parked here for several weeks. And we're going to stay parked here for a few more Um because it's a big deal, it's a big involved topic. It can be pretty complicated. So, you know, we we like to cover these things. So there's a lot of options you can that you can use here. And the reason I talk about them, and I don't get into them in such detail that you know you could probably run out and perfect them and do them yourselves. Uh, you don't even want to do that because this is a this is a place where you don't want to make a mistake. So, but I do talk about them so you know that there are options, right? Let me just give you the the overall picture, and as most people that have a loved one go into the nursing home, or if you're the one that goes in the nursing home, you pretty much are worried about how much it costs. You know, around here, it's $8,500 a month. In Up in Nashville, even more. You know, in the bigger cities, it's expensive. It's more expensive than the outlying areas. It just depends on where you are. But still, even at 8500 a month, that's pretty catastrophic. And so... You know, you start to worry about what's, you know, I've been working all my life, right? My wife and I or, I or me, we've been working all our lives, worked hard. We weren't very, we were frugal with our money. We didn't squander it. We saved it. And now we have this nest egg for our retirement years. And now at that rate of financial bleeding, we're worried we're going to lose it all. And rightfully so, I would say. And that's what most people think. And then they just start looking around to see, what can we do about it? And they get online, and they talk to their neighbor, and they talk to their hairdresser, and the overwhelming response that they get is something along the lines that there's nothing you can do about it. You're just SOL. They're going to get it all. You, you, can't, you can't stop them. They're just you know they're just going to take it, and that's all there is to it. And they get pretty, you know, feeling kind of bad and feeling kind of sad that that's going to happen. You know, I've seen people darn right pan- in a panic mode because of that. Now, the bottom line is it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if that could happen if you do nothing. You know, I always say at the end of every show, I say that doing nothing gives a predictable result. And I mean that. If you don't do anything, I can pretty much hit right the nail right on the head as to what's going to happen. And it's because it's going to be procedure, right? It's just not We just don't wing it. Uh, we know what's going to happen. So if you can do some kind of planning ahead of time, None of this has to happen. You don't have to spend all of it. You know, if we can plan with some time, you don't have to spend any of it on it. You can get eligible, get the benefits and retain all your nest egg. You know, the, the, your, all your wealth. Some people say, I can't believe that. And I even have other attorneys say, well, he must be doing something illegal because I know there's nothing you can do about it. Well, who's right and who's wrong. We do this practically on a weekly basis. We get people qualified. Um, I don't want to use my radio show for this, but I guess I could bring people in who we've qualified for, who who have written us letters or told us and said, you know, we came to you and we had $500,000 of assets. We were worried we were going to lose it all, and you managed to save it all and um, still got the care that the person needed. So, I mean, I guess testimonies can testimonials can be helpful to let you know that this is something we can do. But that's why I have, I go spend so much time on crisis. It is the most misunderstood, the the most misinformation that is out there. And it needs to be cleared up. Now I'm the only one clearing it up. It seems like, but at least around here, imagine that other folks are doing it somewhere, but uh, it needs to be, you got to know these things that exist because If you get trained to know that the only thing you need to do is pay everything you own for your cost of care until you just don't have anything left, and then Medicare, I'm sorry, then Medicaid will pick up and start paying for you, that is self-serving on the people who are getting paid, is it not? Especially when there are other alternatives. Now, that is a way. You could do that, and a lot of people do, because they don't know better or don't look for an answer. And they just get wrapped up in it, and so they, you know, they say, "Oh, the nursing home told us to just keep paying," so they do. They didn't know, you know, they were never advised of other options. So that's why I talk about other options, so you know they're there. For if nothing else, I don't want you to be you know, a loss of all hope and just destitute and just uh, feel like there's, you know, you're at the end of the rope and there's nothing you can do. There's This train you know your bags are packed and you're thrown on this train and you're riding it whether you want to or not that's not a good feeling and so we want to avoid that <laughs> so anyway that's why we talk about this crisis planning that's why we spend so much time on it now i might i might speed it up a little bit but right now what i'm going to talk about today gets into a little into specifics and again we're just hitting the surface of it maybe a little deeper than the surface but we're not getting we're not doing the deep dive because There's a lot involved in this stuff. So if you ever want to do some of this stuff, you know, like anything else in the law, I guess you could do it yourself and represent yourself. But in this area, I would not recommend it. Normally, I don't I don't mind telling people, hey, you can do you can do anything I can do. You don't need an attorney for everything. Uh, There's very, very few things that have to be done by an attorney. And but, you know, so you don't need an attorney for everything. But there's some things where you probably shouldn't try to do on your own. You know, if you have a accused of a pretty healthy crime that was carrying some jail time, I probably wouldn't represent myself because there's a lot at risk. Right. You know, if you're arguing with your neighbor over what you, you know, a bill or a, a, a tree that fell and caused damage or something like that, you know, you can probably handle you can handle that on your own because it's not a it's not a formal rule controlled, you know, a, a procedure riddled with uh, ru- laws of procedure, rules of procedure and uh, rules of evidence and all that stuff. This area is. It's not only that, and it's riddled with the Ten Care Act and all that goes with it. And so it's it's complicated. And when the, you turn in your application, especially a do-it-yourself application, and they deny you, now you can't recover. You know, if you if you fill it out and you're over resourced because you didn't know any better, and you turn it into ten care and you have too much money, even if it's a dollar, okay, if it's over this countable amount you're allowed to have they will deny for you being over-resourced and you would think you could say okay wait a minute let me let me go spend that dollar so it's gone you can't do it now it's too late it had to be that way when you turn in the application you have to be eligible at submission of the application they're not going to give you a trial and error period where you turn it in and say now you're not you're not eligible uh, go out and do something and do it and then turn around and say okay now how are you Uh, No, you still have too much, or you have two cars and you're only supposed to have one. Okay, we sold a car, now how are we? They're not going to give you this trial and error approach to get eligible. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, they're slow as it is, and I guess they got a lot going on, but they don't need that much more going on. You know, handling everybody's case once is probably enough, let alone handle everybody's case 10 times like that. So they don't do that. And and I, I can't tell you how many times. Mr. Stan has been called in to fix a do it yourself application i mean i i uh, it's in the it's probably pushing a hundred and it um you know and it, that's different when someone comes to me and says, "You know mom's in the nursing home and we sit on and we look at the income and the assets and we Uh, look at the different strategies and what the goal of the family is and and the intent of everybody, and we start to fashion a strategy and what we're going to do to get there, that is way different than when I get handed something that's already been denied, and now we're stuck with it. And so typically when you get denied, you have to reapply. And when you reapply, it kind of starts the eligibility clock all over because eligibility begins the day you submit the application. And if you submit it and take here's think about this, if you submit an application and it takes them three months to look at it and finally deny it. And your only recourse now is to refile a new one. You are now three to four months later and that your eligibility has now been punted out those three or four months, meaning you are probably in private pay for that time. Even if you were in your Medicare window when they were paying, I mean, that would exhaust it because that's maxed out at 100 days and it takes 10 care three or four months to approve. Now, I have had cases like that and it's, you know, it's stressful in the family and it, sometimes it feels like we get in there and we fix it, we get there, but it just doesn't feel like we worked our magic like we can if we can be involved in the beginning. So not a good place to practice do-it-yourself stuff. Uh, again, I'm not preventing you from doing. I'm just giving some free advice saying it's probably not a good idea. And I say that, you know, you're probably a smart person. I, I get that. You're probably smarter than most. It's just that there's a lot here. I mean, I have got over a 1,000 hours in just perfecting my asset protection trust alone. The um, crisis planning techniques, they are all unique, and they all have their own set of rules. And we talked about some of them. And you got to do them right, and you got to report them right, and you got to explain it to TenCare right. And then if they deny you anyway, you got to know and understand it so well that you can argue it on appeal. I have taken on denied applications, and they, somebody asked me, "Can I pay you just to do the appeal?" It's like, well, you know, that's tough because when you have an appeal, here's what here's what happens to the do it. Here's what happens to the do it yourselfer. They they do the application, they get denied. They give them a chance to appeal, and they, they say, yes, I want to have an, an, an appeal hearing. It's called a fair hearing. And they say, I want one of those. Now, if you're going to go to a hearing and argue that you were wrongfully denied, and that's what you're appealing, they denied you, and you're, and you're claiming, wait a minute, you should not have denied me. They will typically say in their denial letter why you are denied, right? Now, just suppose they say you are denied for being over-resourced. And you say, "I want a, I want a hearing. I want to appeal that. I don't, I don't think you did it right." Well, if you're going to go into a hearing, there's a couple things you need to do. One, you need to know and understand why they denied you. Two, you need to know and understand fluently that that denial was an error. In other words, they did it wrong. Now, how do you know they did it wrong? The only way to know they did it wrong. Is to know and understand the rules so well that you look at what they did and you say, okay, they violated the rule here, here, and here, and that's why they come up with the denial because they they made the mistake, not us. Then you got to go to court, so you got to explain to the administrative judge what they did wrong, what they should have done, and how it would have turned out had they done it the correct way. And all along the way, you're explaining that you need to be citing. Um, uh, the law criteria, chapter and verse, to the judge, to the law that supports what you're saying. Now, that's the part where the do-it-yourselfer is going to be at a tremendous disadvantage. Because unless you've got thousands of hours to invest in in learning this stuff, um, you're going to be at a disadvantage. You're going to be taken advantage of because, you know, you you don't know. And I know for a fact that the 10-care attorneys, when they know they're going to a hearing with a pro se do-it-yourself Do it, do it yourself application person, you know, they are not worried about anything because they know how to play their end of it, and it's not their job to help you with yours, nor is it the judge's. You don't get any legal advice. You don't get any advising. I mean, you, you know, you can't. They can't do that because if they did, they'd be working an unfair tort to the other side. The, the presumption is if you're going to show up and argue this, then you're going to be treated just like you want to be treated, like an attorney. You can't go in there and say, well, I'm, I'm representing myself, and I'm doing this all myself, but you can't hold me to that standard because I'm just a lay person. And there, you, know, you can't expect me to know and understand the law. I didn't go to law school. You start with that argument, and a judge is going to come down on you with this. One. Why are you here representing yourself? If you know and understand that you don't know and understand these rules, why haven't you hired someone to represent you that, do, that does know and re- understand the rules? And I get it. So, you know, if you're doing it to save money, uh, not a good savings because you're going to end up hiring somebody anyway. I mean, I don't, I'll do it. I don't mind doing it. It's just, you know, I'm somewhat at a disadvantage too because I I, I have to play the cards I'm dealt is a good way to think of it. And sometimes that hand isn't that great, <laughs> you know, and there's no draws left. And it's, um, you know, if you got a bad hand, you know, how do you get, how do you make it a winner? Sometimes we have to scrap it go back to the drawing board, do what we need to do, and then refile. Now, that I can guarantee will be successful because, you know, we, we we are successful with these. So anyway, so what we're going to start talking about now, we're kind of shifting gears a little. We We spent the last couple of weeks talking about some of the more simplistic strategies that we use. And remember I talked to you about that and I told you they were just usually consumer fair market value transactions where we, simply took a countable asset like money in the bank and bought some, say, personal property with it, which is deemed a non-countable asset. And so it was a simple transfer, kind of a quid quo pro. We took some money and bought something with it, so we got something for something. And before that, a couple weeks before that, we talked about the asset protection trust, where we did the same thing, but the difference between the two was we were transferring it into our asset protection trust, which does make it a non-countable asset, but we're not. It's not a. It's not a consumer, uh, fair market value exchange. We are giving that to the trust, and therefore it's subject to the divestment penalty, the penalty period, the five-year look-back rule. So that's kind of where we are. And what we're going to pick up with today is we're going to talk about this concept of divestments. That's the you know I call it gifting stuff away, or sometimes it's referred to as an uncompensated transfer, meaning you didn't get anything for it. Well, the statute uses the word divestment. When you divest something, you're you're giving it away. And giving it away means you're not getting anything for it. And when you do that, there are some consequences that that are that come into play. And that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, this whole concept this week and probably next week is just going to dig into divestments. All right? So all right, so stay with me here. We are coming up on break number one. And Like I said, when we come back, we're going to start digging into this concept of divestments because, you know, in my opinion, it's misunderstood and it needs to be understood because these can have a devastating effect. So stay with me here on Bulletproof Estate Planning. I'm your host, Estate Plan Stan, and I will be right back.
0: Caledonian Financial is a full service family financial planning firm. What we mean by that is we will work with young clients, assisting them with budgeting and ROTS, young families with college planning, life and disability insurance, older clients as they bring in 401k rollovers and seek advice for estate and tax planning, and finally, our elderly clients when it comes to the distribution phase of their retirement plan and long term care options. This is Daisy Cook with Caledonian Financial in historic downtown Columbia. Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated. Member FINRA and SIPC. Chevy White Auto Sales in Columbia, Tennessee specializes in selling a wide variety of new and used cars. If you're looking for a new or used car, see what they have to offer. Need auto body repair? Chevy White Auto Sales also has a collision center. Get details about their latest deals online or call 931-381-1363 or visit Chevy White Auto Sales, 1605 Carmack Boulevard in Columbia, Tennessee.
1: Right, Hey, welcome back. Welcome back from the break. You are listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning. I am your host, Estate Plan Stan. And before the break, we were talking about this concept of divestments. And I was saying how important it is to understand these, because they are misunderstood. And that's what we're going to talk about. So but first, as we move into divestment, there's a, there's a big common misunderstanding. And I'm sure I've spoken of this before. But there's a common misunderstanding that the gifting limits that are associated with gift and estate tax issues also apply to Medicaid or Care. I mean, you, you hear what I'm talking about. The the gifting um, limits associated with gift tax and estate tax issues are, are when the IRS tells you you can gift away $16,000. I mean, it goes up every couple of Januaries, but right now it's as of 2023, it's $16,000 that you can give away. You can gift it to as many people as you want to in any calendar year. And this is something we used to do a decade or so ago when the estate tax uh, was so low that, you know, people with estates wanted to get money out of their estates. So they weren't taxed 40% at death by exceeding the, you know, I think when I was back in law school, it was like a $600,000 cap. And so, but there's a misunderstanding, a tremendous misunderstanding, which that that, that that kind of gifting also applies to Medicaid, 10Care. And it doesn't, okay? It's, it's, I mean, it's not uncommon to see some people that are these do it yourselfers, they'll, they'll come up with these gifting plans that, that labor and work under, the, under the, this very mis, misconception. Let me explain. When you, when you have, when the IRS says you can give stuff away up to $16,000, what they're saying is you can give up to $16,000 away and not have to file a gift tax return. So let's think about that. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, big deal. Uh, you don't have to file a gift tax return. Well, when you, you know, when you file a gift tax return, I think people are under the misconception that that means you have to pay a gift tax. It does not. Uh, you don't have to pay a gift tax when you do that. The The income tax, the gift tax return is informational. Now, when they say you can fi- give away $16,000 and not have to pay a gift tax return, that doesn't mean you can't give away more than $16,000. You can. You can give away $30,000, all in one whack. The only difference between the two is because it's over 30000 you have to file a gift tax return on that gift because it exceeds the gift tax limit for a return. Now, when that happens, you file this gift tax return, but you still don't pay a tax. You're just reporting that you made the gift. So, a lot of times, we we do these gifts in our planning, and people ask me the question: Is does somebody get taxed on that? Is that a gift tax to them, or I mean, is that an income tax? And the answer is this. And I need you to wrap your head around this because you can go, you can make mistakes with this one concept I've seen it and I've seen it till I'm sick of seeing it if you have if you give something away like let's take for example when we did our asset protection trust and we gifted property out of the trust to one of our kids who could then turn around and use it on our behalf remember that that back door uh, it was actually called the unlimited lifetime distribution of principal now when that happens the question comes up is, is when I give that to my kids who turn around and use it on my behalf is that a tax to them? And the answer is no, there's not a tax because it's a gift. And the only person that ever pays taxes on a gift is the giver of a gift. And the giver of the gift doesn't pay taxes on gifts until, until the sum total of his lifetime gifts and his estate at death exceed the federal allotment of, estate tax, which is right now $12.06 million per person, or $24.12 million if you tack them together as a couple. Then you pay the gift tax. Now, let's think about that. I said sum total of your lifetime gifts. How does the IRS know what you gave away during your lifetime? Well, they give it away because, I mean, they know because you have filed gift tax returns when you're required to do so, and so they know what you've given away. When they give these gift limits, what they're saying is you're going to gift away $16,000. We consider that de minimis, and we don't even want to be bothered with a gift tax return on it because who cares, right? I mean, that's that's them saying that. But if it's more than that, then we want to know about it, and we want to know about it so we can put, so let's say I give $30,000 away. Okay, I filed the gift tax return. They get it. They don't look at it and say, okay, how are we going to tax Mr. Stan? They look at it and say, okay, we're going to put this in Stan's file. And then at death, he's going to have an estate. Well, we'll know what that is because, you know, it's going to go through probate or administration or something. And then we'll, we'll know that. And then we'll come back to this file and we'll add up all these returns he filed, however many there are. And we're going to add all that. And we're going to see what his sum total of his lifetime gifts were. And if those summed up, plus my estate – value at death exceeds the estate tax, then they're going to tax me. So it, 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 it's not a, you don't do it to avoid paying a gift tax. They're, you don't pay the tax anyway. But what people think they're doing when they do this is they think they're getting money out. Okay, let's take Aunt Gertrude, right? We think we're getting money out of Aunt Gertrude's account by gifting it away. And yes, you are and you're thinking, "Hey, we can do this. We can do a ton of this because the RS says we can do it." And they do. And so far you're right. Now you turn around and come to me and say, "Hey, listen, Ann Gertrude's in the nursing home. We're trying to qualify her and get her eligible. Hey, man, we're we're way ahead of the game. We've been working on this for years. We've got everything dwindled down. We've been giving property away to everybody and all the grandkids and all the, the everybody. And it's like I find myself in a difficult position because now I have to say to this person, well, IRS says you can do that. And you don't have to file a gift tax return. And you know that, but what you don't know is Medicaid or 10 care is going to consider that a divestment and they're going to punish you for it. They're going to apply the penalty period. And I have seen people literally fall off the chair when I tell them that, or just gasp because they can't believe it. And they they just immediately want to argue and say, but the IRS said we can do this. What are you talking about? You've got to be wrong. And it's like, well, yes, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, is a federal income taxing authority, correct? TenCare is a state long-term care paying authority. They are not the same. And Ten care does not have to follow the IRAS rules, nor does the IRS follow the 10 care rules. It would be foolish to think that was the case. But that's the misconception that people operate under. Don't do that. If you do that, we have just made Boku divestments that we and add up, every one of them, over the last five years. And when people do this, they're usually doing it in the five years before going to the nursing home. They're doing it for that very reason. I get that part. But it's the wrong thing to do. Now we're triggering massive, massive penalty periods that we're going to be stuck private paying during. And we might as well. And there's no limit to the penalty period. You know, if you did nothing at all, you'd be eligible in five years. But, you know, if you, if you um, give everything away, you can rack up penalty periods in excess of five years. So it's even a, a worse place to be than making a mistake. It's like a punishment on a punishment. So there's no planning in that kind of stuff. Don't do it. Uh, Get some advice. Talk to me, or talk to somebody like me, and get this great, you know, scoop on that. Because you can hurt yourself, or you can hurt that person's eligibility. Sometimes to an unrecoverable status. Because you know, Tennessee is one of the few states that lets you cure a gift, or I mean, cure a penalty period. So if you give something away, and you get a penalty period, and you think, "Uh oh, I don't want the penalty period. If you can get the asset back, you can make the penalty period go away, either partially or completely in Tennessee. You know, if we can get half of it back, we can mitigate the penalty period. We can, we can reduce it by half. If we can get it all back, we can make the whole thing go away. So, but in these situations, when we talk about giving this money away, getting it back is usually worse than trying to pull teeth. Because, you know, you go to, your, you go to somebody and say, hey, I gave you $16,000 earlier this year. Uh, we're, we got a problem. I need to get that back. Well, you know, it was cash money and, you know, little Joey got braces or Susie's college tuition needed paid or, you know, we renovated the house. I mean, good luck getting it back. You might get some of it, but usually when it's money like that, it gets spent, it gets used, and you can't get it back. And if you can't get it back, you can't cure the penalty. And now we are in a bad place. or And Gertrude's in a bad place. So that is not an estate, that is not a 10-care planning technique. That is an IRS thing. It has nothing, nothing to do with estate planning. Now, we used to use it for estate planning when we were doing just regular foundational planning and trying to avoid the, the, uh, the death estate tax, but, that, but weren't trying to deal with long-term care. Things have changed where now we, we don't even do it for that anymore since we adopted the Deficit Reduction Act in 2006. So, uh, you know, things have changed. So, you know, those are divestments. They're not ones we're going to do, but those are divestments because you're giving property away. Now, when we talk about these divestments and you're a married couple, because you remember I said many times, the rules for married couple are different than they are for a single person. Way different. So if you're a married couple, it doesn't make any difference. No difference whatsoever. Who makes the divestment? or from which asset the divestment is made from. Okay, now, one thing I want to tell you when I talk about this, I might use some terms interchangeably. You have heard me many, many times refer to gifts. Now, when I say a gift, I'm meaning a divestment. I'm meaning an uncompensated transfer. I'm meaning an exchange where you got nothing for it. Okay, you gave something away and didn't get anything for it. But I'm talking about divestments. I'll try to keep it consistent but you know so we have these with a the married couple it doesn't matter who, who makes the gift or who makes the divestment and it doesn't matter what it, what it came from okay uh, uh, the, the these divestments have penalties so you know any loss of value that we have any loss of value or control is likely to be used as a div- or likely to be viewed viewed by 10 care as a divestment now it it can be from some overt act, okay? Overt means, you know, an intentional, an intentional act of writing a check to a child uh, uh you know, just saying here's, you know, here's $20,000. I'm just going to give it to you. It could be that kind of um divestment that's just uh, uh intentional. Or it could be a divestment that's not so obvious or is kind of unintentional. It's an unintentional act. Like when you add a kid of yours, you add one of your children as a joint owner to a certain asset, like a bank account or to your deed. You know, some people think, you know, I want to avoid probate. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my son on my bank account. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is a probate avoidance technique because now you have dual owners. And when you pass away, the bank account doesn't have to go through probate because now the bank account just has one owner. It doesn't have to pass through anything. It, it, I mean, it didn't really even pass to the kid. You're both owners during life. One dies, now you have a sole owner. They both owned everything in there, and so the fact that now you only have one owner, nothing even passed. So it doesn't, even, it doesn't pass under any circumstances. I mean, I guess you could say it passes under right of survivorship, but uh, it doesn't go through. And that is a probate avoidance technique. And we use that when it's necessary or it's advantageous for us to do so. But what what happens is you do that, and now it's before you pass away and, you know, and avoid probate, you need to go into long-term care, and you decide try to get eligible. When you do, assuming this transfer, adding that child to the bank account happened in the last five years of when you file your application, care is going to look at it and they're going to say, what happened here? And you're going to say, well, I added my son to my bank account so that when I die, I would avoid probate. And they said, okay, I see. They're going to say, okay, so we're going to consider, you know, how much is the son's? Well, half. We're going to consider that a divestment, especially with real property. With real property, they're going to say, Okay, you have a one and a half undivided interest and so does your son. So we're going to consider that a divestment of half the value of the property. Because And they're right. And they're right because if you die, you can leave your half to whoever you want to. If your son dies, he can leave his half. There's no right of survivorship between father and son. That's only in husband and wife in Tennessee. I mean, you can make it father and son, but you've got to do something affirmative to make that happen. But... Um, you know, now you each have this ownership in the property, and at death, it's an inheritable asset that you can leave to someone. So if that's the case, then the son owns half the property. So if it's a $200,000 piece of property, they're going to say, "You gave when you added your son to this deed to avoid probate, the other effect you created, you did. You avo- it, will avo- it will avoid probate when you die. But unfortunately for you, Mr. Stan, you're still alive. And when you added your son to this, we're going to consider you giving him $100,000 value, which is half the value of the house. Now, if I did that in the last five years of filing my 10-care application, they're going to say that's a divestment that carries a penalty period based on the value which you gave away. So as you can see, you know, if you're just going to inadvertently, I mean, if you're going to just overtly do it, meaning just intentionally do it, it's going to surface as a, as a divestment, and it can happen unintentionally. They're still going to view it that way. They don't cut you any slack because you didn't know what you were doing, right? I mean, the people say all the time, I didn't know that would cause a problem. Well, you know, what do you think they're going to say to you? You think they're going to say, oh, I'm okay, if you didn't know that was going to cause a problem, then we're not going to hold that against you. You know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It does not work that way. They will not. If they did, I'd faint dead away and fall off my chair. Uh, so don't count on that. Okay, so you know, whenever you're dealing with these transfers, these gifts, or these divestments, I mean, you got to be mindful. You got to be careful, you know, you got to have you got to have somebody like me clarify what the what the what the consequences of that are, cuz it might not fit into the plan we're trying to do. You know, and when you do that kind of stuff, and you, you know, and you're and then you're applying for temp care and they assign a caseworker to your to your application, depending on what you did, that that sometimes prompts them to start Digging deeper into the transactions because they see what you're doing. You know, if they get whiff, if they get a whiff of you look like you're trying to get rid of assets so that you'll be eligible, they'll start digging into more and more time. You know, they can ask for five years of bank records. They often don't. They often ask for six months, maybe a year. But if they see several divestments where you are just giving it away. They're going to look back the whole five years, um, when when normally they wouldn't. So you know you got to be careful what you do, and you got to know and understand what you're doing. You got to know and understand the consequences of what we're doing. So the the basic philosophy, the philosophical underpinning, I guess, or you know, the basic philosophy of a divestment penalty is just what it sounds like. It's a penalty, and it's supposed to discourage this process of artificially impoverishing yourself through the transfer of assets or by giving them away. So when you give something in other words if you if you give something away it's not available for for the cost of care. And when you give something away the presumption the, under the law is that you did it to keep them from getting it. The language of the statute says a gift is presumed it's presumed that you made this gift for eligibility purposes. Meaning, okay, I got too much money. Uh, I, I don't qualify for 10 care because I got $100,000. How about I just give $98,000 of it away and now I only have 2000 and now I'm eligible. Well, if you give it away for that reason, you're doing it for eligibility reasons and that's what they're looking for. Now, it doesn't. you can give away property and have it not be used with the penalty period. That's a tough road to hoe. I might spend a minute on that when we come back from the break, but um, you can give it away. But I I don't recommend it because, you know, of all the times I've argued that I've only been successful once and it was a pretty good reason. But still, um, that doesn't really work. So this divestment thing is really something we've got to wrap our head around because there are times when we do intentionally give it away as part of the plan. But that's very well thought out, a lot of forethought, and we know just exactly what we're doing, and we know exactly the penalty period it's going to create, and how long, and what we're going to do about it. So that's what this divestment thing is going to be about. So, you know, when we come back from the second break here, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, and we'll probably be here for a week or two. So stay with me here on Bulletproof Estate Planning. I am your host, Estate Plan Stan, and we'll be right back. you know that 70% of Americans age 65 or older will need some form of long-term care in their lives. And even more frightening, 7 out of 10 people who go into long-term care will become completely impoverished within one year. It doesn't need to be that way. You do not need to go broke in the nursing home. Call Prochowski Estate Law to learn how you can protect your life savings and hard-earned property from the high cost of long-term care. Call me at 931-363-7222. What's your favorite radio station? 101.7
0: WKOM. You're listening to your local radio.
1: Right, hey, welcome back. Welcome back to the break. And you are listening to Bulletproof Estate Planning. I am your host, Estate Plan Stand. And we're going to continue with what we're talking about. We're talking about this concept of these divestments. So let me just kind of go over some of the language in the code. I, I kind of take some of the code language out of it, make it a little more of a street vernacular and understandable. Uh, I'm not trying to be insulting, but uh, some of these things can be written pretty confusing. So we want to understand it. So you know, I'm not going to read from it, but I'm just going to go over some highlights. And we talk about this concept of a divestment or a gift or an uncompensated transfer. What is it? Okay, you've heard me talk about it, but, you know, let's see what, the, what it's actually defined as. What a divestment is, it's a transfer of an asset or of income, for that matter, for less than fair market value. It doesn't always have to be for nothing. It just, I mean, we talked about before about overselling and overbuying. It can be just for less than what it's worth. Now, the, you know this 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 applies to any transfer that's completed by the patient. The patient's the person who's um, uh, filing the ten care application. Okay, so it's it applies to any transfer completed by the patient, the patient's spouse, or anyone acting on either of their behalves, Meaning. Somebody acting as power of attorney can make the transfer for them. Because remember, power of attorney is somebody standing in your shoes and acting for you. Now, the transfer can create, you know, they, they say potentially create, and the answer is, yeah, you know, there's not much potential about it. It will. It, it will potentially create a period of ineligibility for 10-care assistance. If the divestment was made within the applicable look-back period. So, you know, we've talked about this. Does, does, do all divestments cause a penalty period? No. Only the divestments made in the last five years, the last, the, the look-back period, which in our state and in the all 49 out of 50 states is five years. Or it's defined as 60 months. Um, now, you know, The thing about that five years, uh, I don't want to digress, but I really think it's important, is that five years used to be three. They changed it back in 2006. Actually, the Deficit Reduction Act came out in 2005 from the feds, and the individual states were free to adopt it or not adopt it. When you adopt it, you had to adopt the the change from three years to five years on a look back. And 49 states did. California did not. Sounds like an advantage to, to be in the... Three-year divestment? Well, it would be, but not in California. They've got other disadvantages that kind of uh, uh, morph that went into nothing. So anyway, we're, we're, we're talking about Tennessee. So now, you know, any transfers that, are, that aren't excluded by as a matter of law or policy that are within this look-back period, they are aggregated. Okay, that's they use that in a term. Aggregated means added up. Okay, the sum total. Any transfers that are in this five-year look-back period are going to be added up to create a divestment penalty because the penalty is based on value, all right? Now, when the penalty penalty starts and how long it lasts is something that we're going to discuss as we go through this. You know, for planning purposes, you know, we need to know the uh, the exact when it's going to begin because when we do some planning and we do some divestments in our planning – we can control when it starts, right? Yeah, you betcha. Now, now, if you to understand how these divestments can be used like strategically in these strategies, um, you know th- those are those are planning tools. For, but first, to understand how we can use them strategically, you got to understand the events that give rise to divestments, when a penalty applies, and how the penalty is calculated. I've gone over all these at one point or another. It seems, it seems important to me to do it as we're in this crisis period because that's where it comes up most of the time. And like I said before, creating a divestment can range from the simple to the complex or from the intentional to the accidental. You know, every major or even minor transaction has to be viewed within the framework of whether a loss of value or control over that asset and even and sometimes even income in some circumstances if that r- loss of of value or control re- results in a divestment then that triggers the penalty okay so you need to understand that that if you got ten thousand dollars is given to one person let's just let's just use a nice round number if ten thousand dollars is given to one person or a thousand dollars is given to ten people each so a thousand each okay it still amounts to a a ten thousand dollar divestment. You know now, you know, certain states allow this curing of a divestment, we're one of them, which is great, which is fortunate. But, you know, it can be sliced and it can be diced into all kind of ways, but all of the applicable divestments within this period will be, you know, fancy word they use, amalgamated, which means summed up, to determine the penalty period. If you don't believe me you can go look it up it's 42 united states code section 1396 small p small c 1 capital e small i small l and if you ever want to read 1396 it's be prepared for a long read and a complicated one i mean i'm very familiar with it and when i read it, it gives me a headache so <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's poorly drafted. Let me put it that way. So, all right. So, again, really, you know, it's like people say, well, you know, I, I can't gift my property away. I'll get in trouble. Well, the answer is you can give it away. You can. It's just when you give it away is whether or not it's going to cause a problem. First of all, if long-term care is not an issue, you can give it away as much as you want. The only time it's an issue is if it is within five years and it creates a penalty period and you're trying to get eligible for ten care. That's when it's a problem. And then it's not, I mean, it's a problem. It's not like they come and throw you in jail for it. It's not that kind of problem. <laughs> what they're going to do is they're going to punish you for giving away by creating this penalty period, which is a period of ineligibility, meaning they're going to say, hey, man, we looked at your application and you're, you're eligible. We're ready to pay. But we're going to impose this penalty period because we see that in the last five years you gave away this $10,000. And so, you know, we're going to divide it by the Tennessee Divestment Penalty Divisor. And we're going to come up with a, a term of time designated in months. And that's the time we're going to say you would be eligible but for this penalty. And that means, okay, we're going to impose this penalty. You're eligible. We're ready to pay, but we're not going to pay. Now, as soon as it expires. As soon as the penalty period expires, we are going to start paying. But you are because you are otherwise, but for the penalty, and that's what we want to deal with, and that's what we want to watch out for. So, all right, listen, I'm about out of time. Uh, you know, so if what you heard this week has piqued your interest, I mean, I'm glad. I'm, I really am glad because my mission is to get the message out. When it comes to estate planning, the you know my mission is that you have options. You've got lots of options. So if you've got any questions about your own family circumstances, I'm more than happy to take the time to answer. Just call my office at Prochowski Estate Law, Prochowski Elder Law. The number is 931-363-7222. Or go to my website at estateplanstand.com. There you can set up one of my 15-minute phone calls. That way my time and attention is going to be dedicated to your questions. Seminar coming up is going to be August the 19th at Suite 501 up in Franklin. Uh, that's a Saturday seminar at ten AM. Remember, I always do say that doing nothing has a predictable result. And that is true. I mean, because if you don't if you just don't do anything, I can usually pigeonhole it and be pretty accurate on what's gonna happen. So let's you know, let's focus on planning and let's get something done. So hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoy doing it. I'll be back on Front Porch Radio, WKOM one oh one point seven. Uh, next week for the next episode of Bulletproof Estate Planning. And remember, I am Estate Plan Stan, and I will see you next week.
0: tennessee has lots of buried pipelines so it's important to know the signs of a leak like if you smell unusual odors or hear hissing see bubbling earth or water or dead or dying vegetation some signs are even harder to miss like dirt being blown into the air a frost ball in an open field or a flame coming from the ground if you see any of these signs, don't wait. Leave the area immediately and call 911 or your pipeline company. For more tips on pipeline safety, visit pipesafety.org. A message from the Tennessee Gas Association, Tennessee Association of Broadcasters, and this station. Hello, class. I'm from the Tennessee Lottery, and your professor for the next 30 seconds.
1: So where do proceeds from playing the Tennessee Lottery go? If you answered education, you're at the top of your class. The Tennessee Lottery has raised more than $7 billion for education programs, like Hope Scholarships, Tennessee Promise, and much more.
0: Now for some easy homework, go to tnlottery.com and see how the Tennessee Lottery helps students.
1: In honor of the dog days of summer,
0: I've asked my best friend to tell you a little bit about the new August Instant Games from the